So Isaiah 50, verses 4 to 10. The Lord God has given me the tongue of the learned, that I should know how to speak. A word in season to him who is weary. He awakens me morning by morning. He awakens my ear to hear as the learned. The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, nor did I turn away. I gave my back to those who struck me, and my cheeks to those who plucked out the beard. I did not hide my face from shame and spitting. For the Lord God will help me, therefore I will not be disgraced. Therefore I have set my face like a flint, and I know that I will not be ashamed. He is near me who justifies me, who will contend with me. Let us stand together. Who is my adversary? Let him come near me. Surely the Lord God will help me. Who is he who will condemn me? Indeed, they will all grow old like a garment. The moths will eat them up. Who among you fears the Lord? Who obeys the voice of his servant? Who walks in darkness and has no light? Let him trust in the name of the Lord and rely upon his God. We have again the inerrant, inspired word of God. And may the glories of our Lord and Savior be proclaimed to us as we hear this. You know, I've often thought, and many of you probably have one of those Bibles, that in particular in the New Testament has those red letters that are supposed to signify, quote-unquote, the words that Jesus actually spoke. And in, in many ways, I'm quite uh, offended by that because it is, in some ways, an attempt to divide the Word of God from that which was actually spoken by Jesus to that which men feel or think they heard and wrote down. And it gives that opportunity to those who want to bring a measure of angst against Scripture to declare that it was nothing more than the words of men and how they felt according to what they heard Christ speak. Uh, it's, it's really, I think, uh, a shame that they do that. But it's also for this very reason. We come to this third servant song. There's four of them in Isaiah's uh, prophecy. And, and this third one is one that is very notably about the servant of the Lord, Jesus Christ whom he sent. But this particular servant song is spoken by the servant himself. And if we are being faithful, which we are, in understanding that that servant is Jesus, these are the words of Jesus. They should be red-lettered too, but they're not. <laughs> and, and there's some of the error in having that distinction made in our Bibles. The purpose of these four servant songs in, in Isaiah is to show that surpassing glory of that servant of God who was prepared to come and to deliver his covenant people. At this particular juncture, Isaiah has already spoken both to the northern kingdom, which was to be decimated by Assyria, but as well to Judah, 
who would be brought into captivity by Babylon and who would be carried away for those 70 years of captivity in Babylon for God to heal the land from the iniquity of his own people. Here Isaiah has been prophesying of that Babylonian captivity. And, And for want of a better word, it was a brutal captivity. There was nothing, if you will, nothing tame or nothing harmless about it. It is very interesting when you turn back a few chapters to chapter 39, which brings on a lot of this uh, fulfillment of the Babylonian captivity before Hezekiah. Hezekiah was going to die, and he didn't want to die, and he prayed to God, you know, I've been faithful to you, extend my years. And God did. God healed him from that disease that should have taken his life and added another 15 years. Well, the Babylonian envoys uh, that came, the Babylonians heard about this great healing, heard about how Hezekiah seemed to decimate that same Assyrian army that laid waste to all of the other nations. And so they come up and they want to investigate just how strong and mighty Hezekiah is. And that is, God should be so kind to heal him. And Hezekiah, in a moment of great pride, allows them to come in, shows them all of his wealth, all of his might, all of his worth, all of his glory, and they walk away very impressed. No doubt plotting, how can we take this kingdom to be our own? And God comes through the prophet to say, What have you done? Have you boasted that this is of your own hand, that all of this has happened? And and it is revealed to Hezekiah that, that Judah is going to be carried away to Babylon. Nothing is going to be left. Your sons uh, that descend from you, they will become eunuchs in the palace of the king and on and on and on. Uh, And have you ever noted uh, Hezekiah's response to all of that? It seems strange to us, but if I can unfold it for you. Hezekiah says, the word of the Lord which you have spoken is good. For he said, at least there will be peace and truth in my days. God rebuked him. And God, because of Hezekiah's sins, added to Hezekiah's father's sins, added to the sins of others who would come after him. You could almost say, I said, enough is enough. The devastation of Judah is going to be great. What Hezekiah realizes, it's really one of these things where he realizes, what have I done? At least there's going to be peace now. Peace and truth. And maybe, maybe, if I can interject these words and these thoughts, maybe God will be merciful. There is that behind it because he hears just how brutal it's going to be. And it's, what have I done? (laughs) Well, Babylon came in and destroyed the city, took Israel, Judah, into captivity. Seventy years But God had promised that he would send a servant who would deliver Israel from their captivity. And and a lot of 
of Isaiah's prophecy is about what God was going to do to restore Israel to the land. And we know that a lot of that prophecy focused on Cyrus. God raised up Cyrus, who was a mighty pagan king, the king of the Medes, uh, to restore Israel. And, And that did occur. The problem is Israel thought these prophecies were done. I remember talking to a Jewish man, and this is several years ago back in Nova Scotia, asking him why he could not see how Isaiah 53 was clearly pointing to Christ. And he said that's because those prophecies were fulfilled in such and such a time with such and such a person. And, and, and it brings out this, this understanding uh, that, that these songs, these songs, though we understand more clearly, they were purposed to point Israel beyond Cyrus. They were purposed to point Israel beyond any earthly servant who would do something benevolent toward Israel or who would help in restoring Israel in some measure. They were pointing to the king who would come not just in the power of his divinity to accomplish such a deliverance, but they were pointing to one who would also come in the weakness of the flesh, in his humanity. That there was something greater that this servant had to accomplish before the fullness of the restoration of the people of God could be done. And and you see that even when Jesus came, people were saying, this must be the Messiah, this must be the King promised by God. But they saw a man in the weakness of his humanity. How many times did you read in the Gospels the responses of those who should have welcomed Christ but looked at him and said, are you kidding me? He's nothing more than a carpenter's son. Now in their day, you became a carpenter if you, do, if you couldn't do anything else. It's not one of those noble professions that, that we have today in the trades and things like that. He's from Nazareth. <laughs> Does anything good come out of that town? They, they looked at him and said, this is not a king. This is a weak man. And it frustrated Israel. Do you know why it frustrated Israel? Because they wanted to be free of earthly tyranny. And they were not so much concerned about the spiritual tyranny that was ruling over their life and ruling within their hearts. Their focus wasn't a God focus. It was a very temporal, earthly focus. And you can see that even in this chapter, Isaiah 50. You go back, and and in the opening verses, God is saying to Israel, more or less that very point, don't you understand why you were sold into captivity? It's because of your sins. It isn't because you had a weak king. It isn't because you were a weak people. It's because you were a sinful people. That I delivered you over. You were a people who knew the glory of your God. Who knew all that I did to establish you as my people. And you sinned against me in such a grievous manner. I could do nothing more but hand you over to that captivity. Which you seem to yearn for so much in your life. They weren't concerned about their iniquities. They weren't concerned about their relationship with God. They were just looking at it in a very temporal manner. 
And you know nothing has changed. In almost 3,000 years, we're still beating that same drum. How many people today want God to deal with their troubles, but not with their sins? (laughs) You see that all the time. God, if you will just... If you just meet this need that I have, then I will. Let's bargain. It is a small thing for God to meet any need that we have in a very temporal way. It's a very small thing. God is sovereign over all his creation. The earth is the Lord's in all its fullness. What an easy thing to ask God to do. But deal with my heart. Deal with my sins. God, come and rescue me. Rescue me from my sinfulness. Well, I'm I'm not there. And the same even with Christians. Many Christians want God to deal with their oppressors. Often more than they want God to deal with their inward corruptions. Oh, Satan's really having his heyday today. Yeah. Yeah. But your sinfulness has opened the door wide for him to come and have his heyday within your church. (laughs) Nobody wants to say that, do they? Or even in our own lives. We want to say, oh, Satan's really at me. Well, sometimes he is. And sometimes it's because God, like Job, is testing your faith. But have you ever stopped to think how you've opened your life up to sin to allow for that oppressor to come in? We're often blind to those things. And in comes the servant and the weakness of human flesh to deal with suffering, to deal with it in a very intimate way by bearing under trials and sufferings himself and what he does within this servant song is he shows us and speaks to us that way of faithfulness under trial the servant who endured to the end to the glory of God something which we struggle to do isn't that true and that's the greatness of Jesus he is the one who was faithful under trial And this song here is leading us to the last one to show us the depth of his faithfulness as he endured the cross in Isaiah 53. And one of the first things we see about faithfulness under trial, uh, showing us Christ in this manner, is the servant's obedience. And you see that in verses 4 and 5. Let's be certain about this. Obedience under trial is never easy. Pain is not something we enjoy or desire to experience. And we often find reasons why we don't have to obey under trial. That's somewhat why I read 1 Peter chapter 2. I heard this past week, so this is something I'm borrowing. But I listened to it because I thought, He made some very good points. But have you ever in the last three years felt like the church has been under attack in our country? I'm sure you have. But you know what? It may not be the way you think. The church is always being persecuted. More or less. 
There has never been a generation of Christ's church that has not experienced persecution at the hands of a nation. And we're very, and and I know this is going to touch on our toes, we're very arrogant to think that our generation is unique in being attacked by its government. We're not. We're not. We are told through what do we enter the kingdom of heaven? Through many tribulations, not a few. (laughs) But the thing about saying that the church is under attack is almost a defeatist attitude to think, well, if we don't do something, this government's going to overtake the church. No, he's not. Because we stand on a greater promise. (laughs) And what is that greater promise? Our Lord, our King, who has said, I will build my church. And not even the gates of Hades can stand against it. And that is the truth. And that's the truth that we are called to operate on. But when we come at it with all the churches being attacked, maybe by an organization or some people or the government, what is our response? Excuse me, our response to that? How have you responded? Keep this under that understanding. Obedience under trial is never easy. What is God teaching us? How to obey him faithfully under a weighty trial. And all too often we act like Peter. We bring out that sword. And, and that sword comes from our mouths. We spew out slander and bitterness and dishonor. And what the, what the Lord is showing us here is how to obey under trial, even those hard trials. Very interesting when you read verse 4. And it speaks about the servant having a tongue of the learned to know how to speak. You go all the way back to Isaiah chapter 6 and you remember Isaiah's own commissioning by God when God said showed him the, the glory of the king in heaven, reigning on the throne, whose glory and majesty was so great that heaven couldn't contain it. The train of his glory spilled out. And, and Isaiah looked at this, and what did he say? Do you remember what he said? Woe is me, I am undone, for I am a man of what? Unclean lips. And I dwell amongst a people of unclean lips. He just realized how sinful his mouth was in the presence of the glory of God. And we read on and we know that the Lord came and sent an angel and and touched his lips with the coal. And he says, "Your, your lips have been atoned for, cleansed. Now go and speak for me. But just remember, Isaiah, as you're going to speak, nobody's going to listen to you. Everyone's going to reject you. You're not going to have a fulfilling ministry. In fact, by the end of your ministry, it's going to shrink to a stump. That's some encouragement, isn't it? To going out in that service of the Lord. 
But what did he need to serve God faithfully under the trial? Clean lips. And you hear the servant, the Lord Jesus, coming and fulfilling that. As he endured trials, his obedience came from the Father, what the Father gave him. And you look here in verse 4 and and 5 and you see, what did the Father give him? An instructed tongue to know how to teach and preach in wisdom and truth. It's marvelous again to read the Gospels and to hear the people say, we have never heard anyone speak and teach like him. Confronting our sins and our errors and our our wrong thoughts of God and his law and his ways. He's showing us a truth. John 7, 46. Even when the people who were sent to try and catch Jesus and arrest him for some slander or blasphemy. They come back empty-handed and and the chief priests say, where is the man? And they said, we couldn't arrest him. No man ever spoke like this man. (laughs) And Jesus did this under trial. And he was given an ear to hear what the chaos of the world would want to hide. The Lord has opened my ear and I was not rebellious and did not turn away. Isn't that a strange thing? The Lord opened my ears. I could hear what was going on. And the response is, I was not rebellious. What do you you think on that with the servant? I think on it in this way. Is that here is the Lord of glory walking amongst his own people and hearing and seeing the oppression that was all around his people and seeing the hardness of hearts, the stiff-necked nature of a people who should have warmly embraced him and welcomed him as their king and as their Messiah, rejecting him and in fact persecuting and coming against him and creating tribulation for him in all of his efforts. And he looks and he says, I will keep going. I will do the work my father has given me. Even though these are a stubborn, stiff-necked people. (laughs) And how did this guard him? This instructed tongue, the open ears to hear the chaos of the world. It guarded him. In his divinity, Jesus could have responded with his justice and holiness. He did once before. It's called the flood. (laughs) He looked upon the whole of his creation and he saw that every thought and intent of the heart of man was evil always. And he said, enough of this evil. I will destroy the work of my hands to rid The grievous sinful nature of man. He could have responded with justice as he did against Sodom and Gomorrah. As he did against Nineveh. As he still does in some ways. We just don't step back and realize what work God is doing upon some nations that have so grieved him. Or in his humanity. He could have responded with righteous indignation. And cast them off. 
and said, okay, enough's enough. You've rejected me one too many times. I'm out of here. We respond that way, don't we? We respond that way against Christ's church. A little bit of trouble and struggle and trial. And we had, I've had enough of these people. I'm righteous in my indignation. See you later. You see the contrast. What he does instead, when he says here, I was not rebellious, I did not turn away with a sincere and compassionate love for the lost and the dead. He fixed his eyes on the work that God had called him to do. He spoke. He spoke with compassion and zeal for God's glory. He spoke with boldness, but always with grace, even when he was rebuking. You know, the only time Jesus actually showed righteous indignation, and there's, there's a few, but the only time he did was when his disciples, first of all, kept little children from coming to him. How dare you keep these from me, whom I want to bless. That's something. God wants to bless someone and you hinder that person from being blessed. Look out. <laughs> or when, when the temple court was filled with all of those money traders and, and they were preventing even the Gentiles from being able to access that area of prayer to seek God, he was righteously angered. Dare to keep people from praying to God. I don't want to go into it, but I just, I'm astounded how many churches are canceling services for Sunday next week and the reasons that they give. Christ, Christ came with a compassion and love that guarded him under trial. And, his, and it was what was given to him, uh, an ability to speak with wisdom and most of the time gentleness. And it wasn't that it was easy for him. The servant's obedience was met with reproach. Verse 6. Here we see Jesus for all of his kindness and goodness and all of the powerfully wise and authoritative truth that, that he presented to Israel. And what was their response? Let's kill him. <laughs> was Christ under attack? Yeah. Did it stop him from being that one who would work the will of God in obedience to the Father. His faithfulness is what shines through and is displayed here. When you read in verse 6, I gave my back to those who struck me. This is the one who is the judge of all the earth, who could have in a moment spoken a word and they would have been decimated. But instead, he gave his back to the injustices that they would heap upon him, even the torture that they would cause him to endure. He was faithful to that. He gave his cheeks 
to brutality and rage. I mean, the soldiers were so angry and frustrated being in Israel and dealing with the Jews that when they had the one who was proposed to be their king, they took out their anger on him, mocking him, punching him, spitting on him. His faithfulness is displayed. The king of eternal glory. He did not hide his face from shame and spitting. Have you ever seen those movies where somebody wants to insult someone and they spit in their face? It's gross, isn't it? But the one who is spitting is the one who is showing contempt and who is wanting to degrade and to insult and to reproach. And, and what did we read from 1 Peter, which was Isaiah 53? What was Jesus' response? And listen to it. He committed no sin, nor was any deceit found where? In his mouth. He did not speak out. He did not lash back with all the rage and bitterness that was in his heart. Uh, That wasn't in his heart, but I mean, that is in our hearts. The way we would respond. And and you know, when when you look at that, and as Peter brings it out, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten. What, is, what does God's word say about that? You back up to verse 21 of 1 Peter chapter 2 and it says, For to this you were called, because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps. What Jesus is saying, this is how the true man of God acts and behaves under trial, even when they stand against you and attack you. And you think, that just doesn't sound right. That doesn't sit well with my understanding of of Christianity. But that is, that is the call of God's people. That is the example that Jesus left for us to follow. And and it's not because he he did it in and of himself. It brings us to the third point that we see in verses 7 to 9. The servant had help. The servant had help. The Lord God will help me. Verse 7 down to verse 9. Surely the Lord God will help me. And again in In 1 Peter 2, didn't we read those words? That he did not threaten in return, but he committed himself to the Father who judges righteously. And the Lord shows us in his own humanity, how do we endure faithfully under trial? Commit your way to the Father. He knows the fullness of this circumstance that is before you. He knows the beginning and the end of it. Commit your way to him and let the judge of all the earth do what is right. And that's what we struggle with, isn't it? Do you trust God? Do you trust 
the Father to do what's right? Or do we think that our anger, as justified as we can make it, is a more righteous way? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? But that's the battle that's going on. And what we see with Christ is he shows us as the true servant of God, as the true man of God, trust the Father, even as I did. And what is it that that the Father will do for you if you trust him, as he did for Christ? Verse 7, he will give you grace to endure. His goodness will meet you in that moment to give you strength to endure in a godly way. And that comes from then sitting back and saying, okay, the Father has willed this for me. I will trust Him to give me grace to go through this for His glory. It's exactly what Jesus did. When Jesus knew His hour had come, you see in verse 7, Where it says there, I have set my face like a flint. I know I will not be ashamed. How was it that Christ could fix his face to go to Jerusalem? And as he said on three different times as he was doing this, I must go to Jerusalem. I must suffer many things. I must be despised and killed. And I will be raised up in the last day. Uh, uh, Sorry, I will be raised up in the third day from the dead. And he was teaching his his own apostles. This is the way that God has set for me. And I trust he will give the grace I need to endure. What did Peter say to him when this was unfolded to him? He said, he pulled him aside and he said, Jesus, this can't be. This is not going to happen to you. There is no way that you should suffer in this way and die. And what did Jesus say to Peter? Get behind me, Satan. You're not mindful of the things of God, only the things of man. Again, do you see where the struggle of the heart is? Do I trust God or do I trust my own self-righteous views? Jesus was mindful of the things of God. And you read the Psalms as we've read them and sung some of them tonight. He prayed for that grace to endure earthly disgrace for the heavenly reward. (laughs) What an example. And and the Father uh, gave him as well a a promise of vindication in verse 8. That was a help. God will vindicate me. He will justify me. Who can contend with me if God is for me? Let's stand together. What are my adversaries? That's why I opened with that thing. Do you think the church is under attack by by the government? Do you think the Canadian government has the strength to pull down the church of Christ? Absolutely not. Now we see they're making life difficult for us, but how is our response going to glorify God if all we meet it with is anger, resentment, and disobedience? The guardian of our heart, the help that the Father gives us is this promise, He will vindicate. And again, there's the trust 
Do I trust God to bring justice to our unjust sufferings? Do I trust God when he says to me, vengeance is mine, I will repay? Do we trust God? The Lord Jesus did. And he had... As his third help, he had the grace to endure, the promise of vindication, but also that knowledge of God's justice. In verse 9, it comes out at the very end. God's justice for the wicked is set. My, if our government wants to stand against the church, who are they standing against? The Lord God, King and Head. The Canadian Nation will grow old like a garment and moths will eat them up before they ever even try to prevent an inch of growth of Christ's church in this nation. God's justice is set for the wicked. We know that. And even that cross of Jesus that brings us salvation, my friends, is also the cross that will speak condemnation to those who despise God because they have lifted up themselves against the Holy One of Heaven and the Holy Way to God. And so we have this help. We have this strength. We have this God who is for us. Of what shall we be afraid? And it's with all of that that the servant comes and is enabled to obey and be faithful under trial. And in fact, in that faithfulness, to be able to cry out to those who, who are in darkness, to those who walk in darkness and have no, no light. He calls out with the gospel to say, I am still the way, the truth and the life. Believe on me and you will be delivered from your sins. If you do not believe in me, all that awaits for you is the justice and the wrath of God. He served faithfully, even under those trials, to issue that, that call. And that, that is the call that we are called to, to issue to the world around us today. That understanding that obeying the gospel is your only hope of redemption before God. It is the only hope for this world that desperately is set against the one who is their only hope. And that's not a contradiction, but that's the way of humanity. We stand opposed to God. We stand opposed to Christ. We reject God's Savior and God's holy servant who has come to redeem his people. And, and in doing so, we reject the only way of life and truth. But that only way is still their only hope. And so we set it before them and we call them to obedience. And, and when we, we are fixed on that, we see as Peter brings out in, in 1 Peter 2, that that's exactly my state before I came to Christ. I was a sheep going astray. I was one of those ones that stood, maybe not as active, but in, 
in opposition to God, I was, I was one of those. I was in rebellion. I was antagonizing God. And, and even in subtle ways, I stood opposed to his kingdom and his servant. But I have returned to the shepherd and overseer of my soul. How? Because that servant who was obedient even unto death, in, in his cross that he bore to bring salvation, has provided the only balm that's able to heal my brokenness. By his stripes, we are healed. Those very trials that Jesus underwent, those very reproaches and, and, and all, all that he bore in his humanity to bring forth redemption are the very things that have now been used to heal my soul. Profound, isn't it? We think our rage is going to heal anyone's soul. Learning to be faithful under trial is learning to look to Christ and seeing his faithfulness that has brought me salvation. And he did it out of love for one who was his enemy, for one who was without God and without hope, for one who was a wretched sinner, for one who was a child of God's wrath. He did it for such a one. And we are called to follow that servant's May the Lord help us. May the Lord give us such a spirit that reflects Christ in that way. Let us pray.